Aloha and good day. This is Clint Hansen with Maui Luxury Real Estate, broadcasting on the KAOI Radio Group. Uh, this is a wonderful Monday morning, and I have two wonderful guests with me, Byron Yap of Axia Home Loans and Paul Brubaker, who's one of our top state economists. Thank you so much, Paul and Byron, for coming and helping with the show today. Thank you. So on everybody's mind, of course, is inflation um, and housing prices. Where are things at and where are they going? Don't have a crystal ball. It's kind of hard to tell. But, you know, certainly uh, as the feds are starting to try to grapple with uh, potential inflation coming on, they seem to see things, you know, right around, from my understanding, like 7% mark. Um, You know, when you're in the grocery store, it's kind of... uh, a different story. They can definitely be at a higher percentage than that. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how uh, inflation is measured and so we can get a better understanding of how that's affecting the average person? Um, Sure. I think this question of measurement is really an important one right now because there are different forces at work. They manifest themselves in different parts of the ways we measure inflation. And in turn, they, because they're different, they call for different kinds of economic policy responses. You mentioned the Federal Reserve, the Monetary Policy Authority, uh, who uh, you know help determine where interest rates are uh, and um, supply liquidity to the financial markets and whatnot, and have a lot of influence over interest rates, uh, particularly at the short end of what's called the yield curve. The longer-term interest rates are more market determined. So where mortgage rates are, are a little bit more market determined, but importantly, embed people's inflation expectations. So a thing the Fed, the Federal Reserve is trying to do is to keep inflation expectations well anchored at the 2% policy objective, but they mm-hmm. can only control certain things. And, you know, the, the, the shortage of semiconductors going to into a brand new Ford F-150 is not one of those things. And so we have to understand uh, these two separate forces. Um, it's helpful to look at the at the data. So you know me. I got to show you the data. Please do. Um, please do. Hawaii is running at about six percent inflation, which means, by the way, that all the stuff you hear in the in the in the news, and this is literally called the headline inflation rate, because it's what the news is going to try to get you to freak out about. So you'll tune in tomorrow to see the update. What the what the media are talking about is a seven and a half percent. U.S. inflation rate, which, as the headline says, is the highest in 40 years if you don't live in Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out in Hawaii, it's not higher than it was in 2006 at the peak of the housing bubble then, which in turn was not higher than in 1990 at the peak of the housing bubble then, the Japan bubble, uh, and not to mention, you know, well below where we were in 1980. And indeed, we've spent 40 years, or the Federal Reserve has spent 40 years conducting monetary policy to get inflation expectations down to the 2% we had pre-COVID that you're looking at right here. Mm-hmm. We had gotten there, people were comfortable with it. Inflation was not an issue until about five seconds ago. And indeed, inflation was not an issue until exactly one year ago. Like a light switch in March of last year, inflation blew up. And you, you may well ask, the hell happened in march of 2021 ah the american (laughs) rescue plan act remember everybody got a check in the mail and everybody's kind of like uh i just got vaccinated i've already gone back to work do i need a check but i'll take it and and so we all went out and spent money 
And that's a part of what's going on there. It's helped to uh, that, that, that event, that, that third of three major fiscal stimuli, the CARES Act in March 2020, which was for business and you know, corporate-oriented, um, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, which was a sort of top off the tank of the PDP loan program at the end of 2020, and then this much more household and consumer-oriented package in March 2021, poured a little too much fuel on a fire that was starting to burn as people began to go back to normal. And on the other side, you know, that we're talking about the demand side of the markets on the supply side, there were still lockdowns at the factories in China that, you know, were making all the stuff that we were buying. So um, you can see some of that if you split up um, the components of the urban Hawaii consumer price index, you can see that two things are happening right now. Uh, one is just oil prices. So oil was, let's do some arithmetic, at $80 a barrel pre-COVID, we were driving around in our Ford F-150s, and then oil fell to $40 a barrel. By how much did petroleum prices deflate? The answer is by 50%, from $80 to $40 a barrel. And then they went back to $90 a barrel. By how much did oil prices inflate? Well, about 120%. And so that's the headline, 120% inflation. But of course, oil just went back to where it was pre-COVID, more or less, plus a risk premium for the incipient Ukrainian invasion. But mm -hmm. outside oil, um, as you, you mentioned food, there are some issues in the food supply chain. Mm -hmm. um, we, we should keep our eyes on housing. You can see the shelter costs have, at the lower end of the spectrum here have been relatively muted, but that may, right as we take off the rent controls and the, the moratoria and so on, and as, we, as these recent home prices sort of build into the cost of shelter generally, right? It's a, a high new home, I mean, a high home price is a problem if you're buying a home, but mm -hmm. for the 97% of people who are just living in their home, it's like whatever. Yeah. Um, and then you have these anomalous, right? Everybody went out and bought a car, uh, so there, but there aren't enough chips to actually manufacture the cars. So then people said, well, let's buy a used car. And now used car, and you see at the top of the list here, used, well, the way to avoid used car inflation is not to buy a used car for five minutes. So a, a lot of the stuff is stuff that just has to work out in the supply chain. And when you break down the headline consumer price index, which are the, the solid dots here, and separate out the food and energy costs. So you take away, you know, for people who don't eat or drive, right, you take away the food and energy costs. You get about two percentage points of the inflation rate in the headline component over what's called the core rate, the core index that extracts the food and energy, which in turn is about two percentage points above what would have been the underlying trend anyway, about 2%. So you get these three pieces, the 2% trend, which is the goal. And then you get the 2% that's coming from this macro event, the stimulus run amok, let's say, a little bit overdone. And you know, it's, it's like triage, right? You don't worry too much about the details. You stop the patient from bleeding and then get them to the emergency room. And then you have this 2% that's coming from the supply chain disruption and mm -hmm. anomalies like what's happening with the, the motor vehicular um, manufacturing process. You know, Canadian truckers are blocking the bridge so the parts can't get to Michigan, um, that kind of wacky stuff. And I, it'll sort itself out. But as you pointed out, and I think most relevant for the housing market, 
the Fed is positioned and has let everybody know that they are winding down their asset purchases. They'll mm-hmm. conclude next month. That liftoff for the overnight interbank lending rate will begin next month. They've already told us this. At least 25 basis points. It's essentially zero now, but starting a process of raising the short-term rate. And as Byron will tell us, mortgage rates have already moved on out as long-term interest rates have risen, anticipating where the Fed is going to want to end up, which is, you know, the Fed's going to want to end up in a, in a range of around two to two and a half percent for risk-free interest rates, short-term and long-term. And when you add 175 basis points to that, you get up to about a 350 to 4% mortgage rate when everything is at the post-COVID steady yeah. state new normal. And what are you seeing right now, Byron, in terms of rates out there? Well, like Paul had said, the market is pricing it in ahead of time in anticipation of March. I mean, we've seen rates from December, they were maybe three and a quarter. In this short span of the year, they're over little over 4%. They're still on shaky ground because you know, the war, like Paul was saying, you know, oil, these kind of things are, they're, they're still bouncing in the air. So, and it's, I, I think it's really going to depend on what happens in March. We, we'll probably see a settling period, but every day it's different. You know, like one day it'll drop down next day. You'll have three price changes because the bond market tanked. Yeah. So it, it's an uneasy period right now. And I, I think this month has shown it to be a real uneasy. It's probably in all the financial things that's happening out there, the direction of what are the feds going to do? How much are the feds going to do it? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're seeing the uneasiness. I think March will probably, like Paul, I think was indicating, it'll probably get a little more flatlined of what we're going to see the feds do. Mm-hmm. Um, one question I did have for Paul, the 2% you said as a basis for inflation, you know, the 2% number that we want to go around. Why did why are we picking 2%? Why did the government or why do we say 2%, not 1% yeah. or 4%? Yeah, what's that you know, baseline? Uh, that's a really good question. 25 years ago, um, uh, a prominent economist who you might have heard of, Ben Bernanke, wrote a book called Inflation Targeting, at which time he proposed that um, if monetary authorities, you know, having successfully, beginning with Paul Volcker, gotten the inflation down over a period of a decade, decade and a half, and you could see we were headed into greener pastures and less inflation risk. The idea was if everybody, if all the central banks got onto the same page and convinced everybody in the financial markets and whatnot to come along with them and kind of agree on a number, then you could view deviations from that number in the short term as reflecting transitory phenomena. That We just live with that. Sometimes oil goes up, sometimes oil goes down. But otherwise, if you can count on a 2% inflation environment, let's say, arbitrarily over time, then everything else can be planned around that. And so, for example, a 4% mortgage rate in a world in which the inflation rate is going to be 2%, almost guaranteed is a world in which two percentage points of what you're paying is inflation, expected inflation. But the other two percentage points is essentially a real cost of credit with zero inflation risk premium. And you just used some language a second ago that alluded to the turbulence and volatility and uncertainty of this particular moment. We sort of all know where we're going to be in March. There's a question about whether it's a 25 or 50 basis point move. 
but we got the Russian thing going on and there's this wacky thing going on in the supply chain and we're just trying should i mask up should i not mask up we're just trying to get back to normal and as that uncertainty abates you know bernanke wrote many years ago it's useful to have kind of a benchmark that we can all fall back on and then the question becomes how credible is is the, the monetary authorities commitment to that benchmark as they build credibility as i say everybody gets on board why two percent it's technical you it's it's harder to get break away from a deflation than it is to modulate or tamp down an inflation. So you sort of never want to go negative. Negative is just, nobody understands negative interest rates, negative inflation, not even economists. The way we measure inflation, we talked about the consumer price index, all those components, those pieces are all moving around. The way we measure things, we have to be careful because, you know, this wasn't in the consumer price index when this was in the consumer price index, not to mention when there were no cell phones. So because of technological progress, new products and so on, and we're always subs we're switching away from the old stuff to the better, faster, cheaper stuff. It was decided, the Boston Commission in the 90s decided that um, realistically about one percentage point of measured inflation is probably, probably comprises biases that come from uh, the inadequacies in the way we measure it. And so if you want, you don't want to go negative, you know there's a percentage point of bias, but you want to have enough of a cushion so you never go so close to zero, you risk going and, you know, kind of just add an extra percentage point. That's literally that much complexity. And that's where the number two came from. <laughs> you know, it could be 1.75, but you know, yeah. it's just easier to remember in a Monty Python kind of two is the number and the number is two kind of way. So. <laughs> well, as a, like an example I hear all the time from people, some of my friends is that, hey, Byron, you know, everything is going up, but my wages aren't going up. You know, oil, like you said, is going up $2 yep. or whatever, yep. but my income isn't going up. So how is the feds or how, how, how is it yep. going to help me with this inflationary part? This, this is a really good question. So let's think about this for a second. I look out there and let's say we've all, everybody's gotten on board. Two is the number. The number is two. We actually, you know, we actually kind of been there for 20 years, except for deviations, which come and go. And so when, if everybody's on board, but your wages aren't rising at least 2% per year, you need to think about what you're doing <laughs> relative, right? Because there's probably somebody out there who's doing better than that and they have no problem with 2%. So again, because we have a common yardstick, now we can begin to, it, it informs a lot of other economic decisions we're making. Like if my company's product prices are not rising uh, that fast, or for example, if I, you know, I'm committed to keeping my prices constant, um, is my quality rising enough over time so that I'm always looking better, faster, or cheaper. You see what I mean in a real sense? These are all things in a stable inflationary environment that are easy, easier to, in which to engage in terms of economic decision-making, production decision-making, life, you know, occupational choices and so on. Artificial and, scarcity being one of those. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you see the price of, or the a random board length of lumber go from $300 a board foot to $1,600 a board foot. You need something against which to benchmark that movement. 
whether it's temporary or not, it's freaking $1,600 a board foot. I'm switching to steel studs or something. You see what I mean? We make decisions. My, my son bought a used or um, used, anyway, some big ass SUV, you know, 2005 model Chevy Suburban for 5,000 bucks. I said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm flipping it. He sold it for 8,000. So, <laughs> okay. Some people do Bitcoin. He's doing used cars right now. I mean, <laughs> these things all send signal, prices send signals, and it's useful to have a benchmark against which to compare. Uh, a really important signal that it should be sending to young people. If your wages aren't rising, if you don't anticipate that you're going to be able to and uh, you know, create enough productivity growth growth in your skills and productive capacity to earn at least 2% more per year in the long run of things. I guess sometimes you stick with a job for a while, you learn the skills, and then you get a big bump up, big bump up when you move to a, a new employer or to get a promotion or whatever. But if you don't see that, then you need to be thinking about whether you're accumulating the skills that you do need. Yeah, because necessary. Your competition is, East Asia and East Africa, you know what I mean? If you're a young, unschooled worker, right, your competition is in Addis Ababa. So at the other end of the Silk Road, there's some guy that hungrier than you that's willing to work harder for less money. And so anyway, believe it or not, it all ties together. For and, the yeah. effect on uh, interest rates that I'm seeing right now, um, it hasn't had any impact whatsoever on the real estate market on the upper side. So anything that's above a million dollars or whatnot. Um, and I still have a plethora of buyers in the lower price points. Uh, sure. So when a more affordable condo comes in, you know, instead of having 15 to 20 offers, you know, I'm getting six to seven offers. Uh, so still there's plenty of demand there. And uh, the main issue, of course, is supply. And I'm starting there to see go. some people make the decision to list. There is some microscopic increases in inventory, but not nearly sufficient to meet with demand. So, you know, inevitably, I think prices will continue to rise. But the question is, of course, how much more in, you know, interest rates are going to be changing. And again, I think that's going to be more effective of those lower price points as opposed to the higher ones, because they're usually paying cash anyway. Here's another important uh, way to think about that 2% inflation benchmark, the, the, the sort of the goal, the policy goal. If you look at my single family and condominium prices over the broad sweep of 30, 40, 50 years of history, it turns out the appreciation rate is about four to five percent before adjusting for the two percent inflation and mm -hmm. if, you, if, you, if, you, if you take out the inflation it, it was higher in the past it's lower now um the real appreciation rate is two percent per annum you would think wow only two percent well you know compounding and so on and so forth and of course that's the capital gain the dividend is you get to live in the house so when you put that together the total return makes it worth borrowing you know, more, getting mortgage finance at 4% all day long. Yeah. But uh, it, it is interesting how in a world in which inflation is not as much of a risk as it used to be, and I think we still live in that world despite the concerns right now about short-term properties of inflation, uh, a world in which you can plan for the next 30 years 
of, you know, let's say 4% home price appreciation, two percentage points of which is inflation, is a, is a relatively stable world in which you can put your energy into thinking about other things than whether I'm going to be able to afford a house down the road. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I'm really surprised, though, with the, you know, scarcity being what it is. And I understand where it comes, at least locally, the fact that so many people have the ability to work from anywhere and actually have been for a long time. But with so many jobs on the West Coast of the U.S., you know, being in the digital space anyway, now they've been given specific instructions to not come into the office and are demanding to be able to work from anywhere forever. And it's, they're even willing to take pay cuts. So that has created, you know, a significant increase in demand here. And, you know, there's a lot of um, jobs out there that you can work from home. You know, there's people that are therapists and online therapy is becoming significantly more popular nowadays. And, you know, being uh, able to meet your clients uh, wherever they are in a safe environment allows you to get to more of them. And, you know, the margin goes up and you can be anywhere in the world. Where would you want to be? Obviously, Maui is on the top of a lot of people's minds. And um, it's been really tough for people who live and work on island. I've uh, definitely noticed uh, a strong portion of the population just immediately exited when COVID hit. And um, now I'm seeing additional people leave the island because of increases in rent or, you know, the inability to find a replacement rental. And that's been really tough. I mean, I've, I've lost friends to the mainland and clients because of, um, you know, basically that, that action. And I've been talking to the county for a long time, as you know, you know, we, we oftentimes get asked to interview and testify and since as long as I've had my license, I've been saying, look, even through 2008, I was like, we have a massive detriment of available inventory. We cannot meet, you know, the local demand, let alone the people that are coming in. And it isn't within the county's power to create housing specifically for people who live and work on island. I mean, it's, it's not a violation of the constitution or anything like that. Resale on the other end, that's, that's a different bag of tricks and there's, you know, community land trusts and things like that available. Um, but uh, I'm happy to see after significant pressure over decades, they're starting to institute policies where they can issue a bond and create infrastructure and then sell developable areas as opposed to relying on massively wealthy developers that can do the project and are willing to carry a project for 15, 25 years to get those entitlements as opposed to making the county responsible for where things are going to be built and what's going to be built there. So there is potential improvement, but I don't know how we're going to ever meet that magical shortfall number, whether it's 5,000 or 10,000. <laughs> well, I think it's an issue of dialing the, the periodic flow of new housing units up enough, right? There's not like there's a number, yeah. but there's a flow of new units, which clearly is inadequate Way currently and has been for a while. That's, leading to the kinds of outcomes that you talked about. People vote mm-hmm. with their feet, right? Yeah. Exit voice and loyalty. Wasn't that the na- name of the book long? You know, this the guy who came up with the expression voting with their feet wrote this book, <laughs> Exit Voice and Loyalty, I think it was. Anyway, about this very phenomenon where you give enough power, political power to local people who are going to preempt 
capital formation, new home building, and so on. And what you you know what you see is the segregation you talked about, right? The, the rich people don't care; they can afford to do whatever they want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If they're building one, you know, massive uh, home for themselves, and hey, it's their land; it's their money. Get out of their face. They can do that without any restriction being imposed by the county because it's just one house. But when you get people who just want to build, you know, multifamily dwellings for regular working people, all of a sudden they've got to jump through these hoops. Yeah. Uh, this is how much you have to build of this, and this is how much you get to build of that. And they're like, get out of my head. So, and, and what we've seen is that the requirements, the quotas, uh, they're called inclusionary zoning requirements, but they're production quotas. But mm-hmm. the production quotas are in themselves the suppressing factor. And the problem is, as they say, it's a reflection of a bona fide resident political aspiration to manage a development. But the outcome perversely is one in which yeah, the wealthy investors can do whatever they want and the and the um, you know, people of, of more modest means are short shorted the opportunity um, to get the house that they want. It's yeah. not like Maui doesn't have enough land. I am sorry, man. When you don't come, when you come from an island like Oahu, which let's face it, a little smaller, and um, you know Maui doesn't want to be Oahu. Okay, whatever. You know Oahu doesn't be want to be Singapore. Yeah, whatever. I mean, okay, I get that. You can't tell me there's not enough. You know, you could just land. carve out one place to put all of the affordable housing. So it's you know it's right boundaries and bandwidth. I get the boundary thing. We're really good at that, but we don't have the bandwidth to yeah. get the product out to the out to the market. I, I so, had a question because I, I, again, I'm I'm I, you know, I'm just a layman. I don't really understand the economy part, but in my mind, I'm thinking, why wouldn't we lower short term? You know, I, I know we're at zero, but lower the short term rates because then the money is cheaper, so the people can afford these things. From a layman's perspective, yeah. why is that wrong? No, Byron, you're you're not wrong, and we just did that. <laughs> the, the, we've been doing that for like a decade, as it turns out. If you look back at the historical record, this has been an extraordinary moment in economic history for anybody, not just people of more modest means, um, to finance uh, residential investment. But of course, it financed all investments from hedge funds, you know, to meme stocks. Um, but you're right. Yes, we. We, you know, it was, we went through the worst recession since the Great Depression, 10 or 12 years ago. And the recovery from that, because it was rooted in housing, the recovery from that recession was long and drawn out, needed the Fed to keep its pedal to the, you know, keep the gas pedal, keep its foot on the gas pedal. And what in the historical record are relatively low interest rates um, for a long, long time. And <laughs> Four percent is not expensive mortgage finance. Um, I hate I to say, remember it. the nineteen so, eighties? <laughs> no, no, and I agree too. Yeah, it's just yeah, like yeah, yeah. People for so I think maybe the problem was in my mind, we we held it too long. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's what. Yeah, absolutely. That's what's happened in the last twelve months. We've awakened to find out. Holy crap! How <laughs> we have seven and a half percent inflation nationwide? Yeah, because everybody pretty much had the stuff they needed, and then. And then the treasury all sent them a check for a thousand bucks. Yeah. Okay. I'll buy more stuff. I mean, 
Well, that, that, that's the whole thing is because I think it was held too long, too low. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, now, yeah. Yeah. You know, the norm is four, which is still low, but in everybody's mind, the last 10 years, we've had it at 3% or lower. Yeah. Like five minutes ago, it was 3%. <laughs> so do so. you see, I mean, as we go into this, do, uh, do you, uh, the, the easing or whatever the government's going to do, would it be safe to say, or possibly that we're, we're heading into, they're going to try to um, stop this inflation to curb it down by lowering the rates and doing other things that maybe we don't see to help us or what? Yeah, is they're, they're, yeah, they're the short term, you know, the short term, I mean, there's they're not that many tools to dampen inflationary pressure, but unfortunately they all involve a, a, an overweight man sitting on everybody and crushing yeah. the inflation for a while. And, um, uh, you know, it's just like this, the, the Paul Volcker slam dance in 1980, only we're not starting at 18% inflation. We're starting at seven and a half, maybe half of which is really macro in character. And, and we're, we're looking around for the biggest sumo guy we can get to come sit on the economy with higher interest rates for about a year. But the other three percentage point is, as we talked about earlier, about resolving disarticulation in the supply chain. And some of that just came from the fact that, you know, it's like with housing. I thought, seemed like everybody thought when COVID first hit, oh, there goes housing investment. You know, there goes residential construction. And we all prepared for a, a, a great winter of, of low residential investment. And what happened was the summer of 2020 was just the opposite. Everybody pimped out a home office and residential construction exploded. The problem is the sawmill shut down. <laughs> they shut down because of COVID. And then everybody showed up like, bro, I need some studs, man. Where's my lumber? And, 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 <laughs> Bro, that was two years ago, and we're still, it's like a, you know, when you throw a big rock into a pool and the, uh -huh. the waves ripple out, the reverberation, we're still going through that. Now we're so, having choke points at uh, yeah, harbors it's throughout the world. That. Yeah, because, and the solutions to those things are only long-term in nature, like, oh, yeah, we'll build more bridges. Okay, that'll take 10 years. And then, yeah. But, hey, I'm all in favor of infrastructure investment. Clinton mentioned, wow, the county just discovered that they could issue bonds Duh. and improve infrastructure, which, uh, to be fair, I've worked with a group over there in, in the mayor's office and whatnot. And with every mayor's office, by the way, this has been going, we've had a conversation for, for decades, 10, 10 or 20 years, but it came up after the COVID moment because, you know, what can a jurisdiction do when it can reasonably anticipate that there's a risk that their tax revenue is not showing up. The answer is you still have a triple A bond rating, right? <laughs> Municipal bond finance only costs you like 200 Next basis to points. To, yeah. it's, it's for the Fed's guaranteeing you free money and you have a triple A rating. Just borrow some money and go add some lanes. And, you know, you're like, let's, let's stop the head on collisions by having multi-lane divided roadways. It's you know, something, I don't care. Build some more sewage treatment capacity if you're worried about non-point source pollution from the injection wells and wherever. And um, so to their credit, uh, the, the, you know, the wheels of the bureaucracy have been grinding slowly towards this. Finally. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, the old codgers will all tell you, I heard this from, um, who, who's your mayor now? Um, uh, yeah, um, 
Victorino, Mike. Victorino? Uh, yes, I always, I, I, I don't. I used to say Shane's dad, and that used to drive him crazy. So, Mayor Victorino, brother, he was around back in the '60s when all of that A and B housing was built. You know, when Maui was when Maui's population had declined for 40 years until statehood, and then in the 1960s things turned around, and um, and a big part of it was the county actually building infrastructure, right? That the territorial government and later the state government and the county facilitating residential development by providing the roadways and the water mains and the, you know, the sewage treatment capacity. How everywhere has been doing it forever. <laughs> well, the way we used to, we all used yeah. to do it, right? We, you, you pay for infrastructure over a long duration by creating the assets from which the property taxes are generated and the user fees to 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 uh, you know pay down the debt. Simple, right? <laughs> and somewhere along the way in the 1970s, the hippies showed up, and we all were smoking ganja or something, and decided we would stick it on the man. And we would make the developer build the road, and we make the developer build the school, and we make the rich, evil capitalist developer build the the water infrastructure. Because That's it's free, because he's rich and he's a capitalist, and now we don't have any houses. So, yeah, I, my impression is the, the, the creative minds over at the county have been able to get together and get something going. And then, of course, the federal government, the Congress, actually came through on you know at least one thing the new administration wanted, which was this big infrastructure package. So we'll see, you know. But that does to your question earlier, Byron. That doesn't get us low inflation in the next six months. Mm-mm. Well, the Warren Buffett said, you know, and like you mentioned, the big fat man is yeah. that the Fed has very little tools to control of inflation. But the one tool that they have is a tremendous brake pedal. And that's, you know, the interest rate. They that's do not right. have a particularly good gas pedal. Um, yeah. So they have to be very careful about their, you know, into in, incremental increases. So, it's the old yeah. pulling on a string problem. They can. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. When you push on the string, it just goes limp. <laughs> it's like, uh... So I'm uh, positive about the future. I definitely think that we're going to see things stabilize. Hopefully we won't see prices continue to jump up at the same rate that they have been. You know, But I think that's all going to depend on available inventory and people's decision what they're going to be doing for the future in conjunction with uh, interest rates. Because at some point, people will pay anything to be in Maui. And if their price range is a million dollars and a Kihei village is the only thing that's a million dollars, they're going to buy it because we have the best weather in the world. And it's there next to the beach, even though historically, you know, they might've sold at less than a half a million. Now they're 550 to seven, uh, you know, 675,000, depending on the location that they are in the complex, which is really quite an amazing jump in a short amount of time. So um, the only real uh, alleviation is to help local people out. And by that, they need to increase infrastructure. Tell us what we want and tell them where you can build what. And then the developers will take care of the rest. <laughs> well, we'll have to leave for another time the conversation about when we move all of Kihei on the other side of Pilani Highway. Because the, the I'm sorry, Azeka's Market is the beach, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And once the ocean is going to be inside you guys, so we got to figure out, but that's another another radio show. I would add two things that support your optimism. 
One is that a lot of the concern I hear about, oh, these new carpetbaggers coming to Maui because they can work remotely and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. First of all, we are them. I mean, right. we are actually doing this on, on Zoom. But but second, I'm not. it's not clear to me how that's a bad thing. <laughs> they have, you know, people come by, oh, the tourists come and they drive to Hana. Yeah, not if you're working from home. <laughs> so, so try to, and then here's the other thing about that. 5%, 3.5% of American workers work from home full-time pre-COVID. About 90%, 89.5% of workers never or almost never work from home pre-COVID. So 90% never did, less than 5% did full-time, and you know, maybe 5 or 10 percentage points worked in hybrid arrangements. They went to the office some days a week. They would work from home some of the time. Now that's going to be <clears throat> 20 to 30% that are gonna be able, either working remotely full-time or in a hybrid arrangement. A quarter of the workforce is going to be engaged in this new kind of work lifestyle, mm-hmm. home lifestyle. And, but it's a one-time, right? We, before we called it shirking from home and what? you're working from home. Oh, working. Shirking from home. Oh. And your HR department wasn't going ever let your company conduct the experiment on what would happen if we if a quarter of us worked from home. Then COVID made forced us to conduct this experiment simultaneously. And we all got Zoom. And here we are. So it's a one-time shift. It's a productivity enhancing shift for the people with skills, not so much for the people who don't have the ability to do that. That's a whole other issue. But mm-hmm. once you've made the shift, you've probably made the shift. Mm-hmm. And two years out from the start of COVID in America, I think we're closer to the end of the shift. So it's not like there's another five percentage point or 10 percentage points or 20 percentage points of households across America that are clamoring to live on Maui because they can work from Maui. I think it's a one-time thing. And all the people that were going to bust a move probably have by now. And then there's a couple of guys who realized as many people who come here from the mainland do, I can't live here. <laughs> so I got to get off this rock. So I think, I think the concern about this, you know, invasion of, of you know, alien creatures. Symptomatic, uh, not causal. It, well, and it's, it's a one, to the extent that's happened at all, it's, it's probably a one-time event. What's striking is if you look at the percentages of off- offshore buyers in Maui home sales, um, it's actually... Um, lower today, right? The percentage of resident buyers is at its highest level of the last, I only have 15 years of data, but it's mm-hmm. a, it, it, it backtracked just a little because of this COVID moment. I see. But generally, um, you know, the proportion of resident buyers has never been significantly higher. And the only time it was, was two seconds before COVID. Um, there are actually fewer offshore buyers uh, in Maui than say 10 years ago or 15 years ago or even five years ago. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And a lot of that had to do with, uh, you know, during 2009. Uh, yeah, no, had, it was the, a big disparity in the American dollar compared to the Canadian. So we had tons well, of Well, there's the Canadian thing. They made I, up like 60% of the buyers at that point. <laughs> but I mean, there was a big fire sale. Let's face it. There was yeah. a big fire sale in 2010. And they got a double discount because and, uh, they had the monetary difference. There you go. People who, well, the Canadians, because the, the price of the Canadian dollar is the price of oil. So let me tell you, at $90 a barrel, 
you may be having more of them coming to key hay right yeah that's so that, yeah that being said um you know one of the things uh, i see a lot of people happy when they're like oh good maui's population numbers are dropping you know that's good but you know that actually from what i've read actually causes an effect where home prices continue to increase because the people who are leaving is often the skilled labor necessary to build additional housing. So that shortfall in skilled labor ends up being a feedback loop where additional people leave because prices are increasing and they can no longer afford to live here. You know, rents get increased and, um, you know, there's no available properties. So they're going to go to the mainland where auntie or uncle live. I, I think it's, dangerous to generalize but my to the extent you can i think the idea that um population decline is a good thing um is ludicrous and um i mean go ask people in detroit how they like 40 years of scraping abandoned home sites right because of yeah. population loss so if, if you're losing population, it's generally speaking, a sign that something is really amiss in the economy. And customarily not something people celebrate, except for the guy, you know, for the wealthy dilettantes who would love to see the peasants get off their island. Precisely. Most of the people that I see glad about those numbers dropping are generally the guys who just moved owners. there yeah they move here and they're like yeah oh you know we don't need so many people yeah. on maui it's like wait where i want from? maui to be the way i imagined it was before i got here yeah dude, it was <laughs> never like that we worked in the cane field so <laughs> i love it in the past you know like with inflation numbers when they got high Mm. What was the end result? Was it a collapse in the market or they got it under control? What, what are some of the cases, you know, for the view, listeners and viewers, you know? Yeah, sure. Fear, you know, I've got a fear too. You know, it's like inflation, inflation, you know, what, what have been the yeah. outcomes yeah. of some of them? Well, first of all, it is important to recognize that what we're talking about is nothing close to what it's like when it gets really bad. So I, I just want to make sure people aren't, you know, having uh, heart attacks or whatever about, I mean, you, you guys, I don't think either of you are quite as old as I am, but the, the 70s, for example, was a period in which inflation gradually increased over a, a, about a decade and a half from the, you know, the war in Vietnam and the war on poverty. So fiscal stimuli of the 1960s, and then some monetary policies, which now in retrospect we recognized were um, not credibly committed to lower inflation which is dangerous because then once you once people start gambling that you're not going to be able you there am i still here yeah once yeah, people you. you get it into their head that they don't think you're going to be able to control inflation they all go out and negotiate with their union for a six percent annual wage increase and then the thing becomes self-perpetuating that's really what we're trying to avoid here right is this is uh, turning this thing in a, into a momentum, uh, a, a momentum game, a momentum game. But just to you know, to be to be clear, what we're talking about, because it's one thing to invoke uh, history, and another thing to sort of see a representation of it. Here are Hawaii inflation rates since the World War II era. So 
I mean, when you look at these big inflation spikes over the decades past, you realize generally they're associated with some kind of disruption like world war. <laughs> and, um, uh, and I, I labeled this one in the mid seventies, the, the, this is when OPEC really began to be able to flex its muscles as a, as a, a um, collusive uh, oligopoly uh, cartel of country of national uh, petroleum exporting countries. But in fact, it was the outcome of an oil embargo by some of the countries that were on the losing side of what's called the Yom Kippur War in the fall of 1973, I believe it was. And, and so even then, and you see the Iranian revolution and so on. So high inflation, it tends to be corrosive in two ways. The the, the obvious way is that fewer and fewer and people are able to keep up. Fewer and fewer people are able to get a 10% wage increase just because there's a 10% inflation rate because the businesses are being blown up by the, their, their production costs are going up and so on. But the second is that um, you it just becomes really hard when it's embedded in the way people think about the economy, uh, what we call inflation expectations. It just becomes really hard to root it out once people have built that into the way they think about approaching negotiating contracts and whatnot. So now we have a new aspect of uh, the meme economy, the meme economy. Well, know, as there it you grows, go. And when people start getting more serious about putting memes out there of the inflation and how it's affecting their lives, I think that's going to be the point where, you know, maybe using some more heavy handed tactics. Well, this is definitely the new frontier for us because we've seen how misinformation and disinformation have been disruptive, disruptive in their own right in other areas that um, maybe aren't as pervasive as, you know, inflation is sort of like the atmosphere, right? It's happening all around us all the time. And it's, it's abstract in the sense there's not really that much we can do about it individually except for avoiding it. And that's an mm -hmm. important point too, right? You don't have to buy a used car. So if, if it's contributing 30 percentage points to the overall inflation rate of 6%, these are it's a, basically the 6% inflation in Hawaii is a weighted average of all components. And so there are some components like petroleum, you know, liquid fuel prices that maybe are more difficult to avoid than others. Um, but there are some like used cars, really? Okay. So, you know, if beef is becoming more expensive, well, maybe buy pork for a while. Mm. I mean, you, you know. What, 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 like surfing. <laughs> True. No, for the listeners that aren't don't see the graph, what we saw is a graph from 1940 to now, different inflationary yeah. periods. What I noticed on that graph was there was war-related items, there yep. was OPEC. The one thing that that stuck out to me is this is the first time a, a, a disease or something is on there, which is kind of an unknown where it's going to go or what it's going to do because. Our economy has changed from years past being more of a global economy. Correct yes. me if I'm wrong there. So we don't really know how this post-COVID thing is going to turn because this is the first time of an event like this in the last, what, uh, Actually, there is, there is some guidance from history. Um, okay. I just don't have a Honolulu or an urban Hawaii now. And by the way, um, my apologies to you. Maui is now a metropolitan statistical era. So oh. you've joined... <laughs> Sorry to say that Maui has joined Honolulu as a as as part of the urban Hawaii consumer price index. I just don't have data before 1940, 
Then but, yeah, the, words. <laughs> but the last, you know, the last pandemic in 1920 uh, and 21, um, uh, we, you know, I would have to look up. I'm not going to make any assertion about yeah, no. its inflationary impacts. I do think, though, it's important that we talk about the lights, you know, like the light switch, you know, it's like inflation lit up after March of last year because of the nature of the fiscal stimulus, the timing and its large size. And in retrospect, I would have to say, maybe too large, you know, maybe one trillion would have done it, maybe two trillion was over the top. But of course, you're trying, you don't want to do, you don't want policy to be inadequate. Uh, there's a, a, at one moment, you may be willing to, to take on, you know, a risk that in retrospect, um, looks ill-advised. At any rate, it was very sudden. And for that reason, sudden inflation spikes tend to be short-term in nature. And more specifically, something that's happening on the aggregate supply side of the economy, like the supply chain disruption, is not something that policy on the demand side of the economy can remediate. Monetary policy cannot solve the supply chain problems. If the price of shipping a container from Shanghai to LA has gone from $1,500 to $10,000 per container, uh, things just have to rebalance before the, those prices go back down. What do you think of policies, you know, obviously infrastructure and policies increasing harbor space and or mobilizing yeah. the National Guard in order to have the hands on deck to rectify the the bottleneck? Because from what I've read, yeah. the majority of the United States um, reduction of goods comes from California because there used to be the number one harbor location and they've divided it out between, you know, more sure. Western locations, and um, there's just so much stuff coming in. There's no way to keep up with it. You know, this is a fascinating area, and I'm I'm no logistics ex expert, but I hang out with them. I work with a I work with the ocean <laughs> carriers and whatnot. I just these are fascinating uh, industries. I once was um, I once bid at an, a charity auction for the for uh, to be able to take somebody to lunch on one of the Masson container ships. And so we went and ate in the galley <laughs> container ship. And they were like, um, how many people, this is like an, an you know, 800 foot long vessel, right? 900 foot long vessel, three football people, just something like that. And they're like, uh, what, you know, how big is your crew? And uh, 18, but actually three of those guys we don't need because the union just makes us game. So like, holy crap. Um, my point is these logistics, these supply chains are, are miracles of modern technology and, and, and lit, you know, literally flow management, the, the, the ability to, to manage the flow. I mean, dude, you, you think I want one thing. I get on Amazon. It shows up at my house tomorrow. That's crazy. But the, the, the world in which that's possible, when it's working, like clockwork is amazing, but when it gets disrupted, <laughs> and then the point you raise is, well, maybe we need two San Pedro or Long Beach, you know, harbors, but there, therein lies the dilemma. If you Decades. scale, if, well, if you scale, so that you always have backup, right? We need Pearl Harbor and a backup Pearl Harbor. Well, then you've just spent money on a backup Harbor that never gets used. And yeah. so the way we've, come to work these things is to just get the capacity exactly right right and then 
use computers and satellites to flow the product through the bandwidth efficiency with, with, with you know super precision and efficiency and it is vulnerable to disruption so i you know the experts will be thinking about that me i'm just guilty of buying stupid stuff on amazon that pops <laughs> into my head every day <laughs> Oh my, hey, it was Valentine's, so I'm sure there was a lot of orders out there last minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, coming back to housing prices and inflationary yes. effects, and yeah. one of the big questions I get asked is, are we in a real estate bubble? And from what I can read, um, depending on which index you're using, a lot of people like to use the fear index, you know, and, uh, or <laughs> the, uh, what do they call it? The... Um, uh, how excited they are about the economy. I can't think of the word, but um, we have apparently entered into bubble territory. But from my understanding, looking in the past statistics, we also entered into a bubble back in 1999. And we stayed in that bubble, you know, and it continued to grow until about 2009 with the subprime crisis before the bubble popped. Now, being, you know, saying that, hey, we're in a bubble, what's your whole interpretation of that? Um, it's like inflation where, um, there's a tendency to, you know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads is kind of the way people approach these things. So you have to be a little careful about throwing the term around, uh, bubble technically an asset pricing bubble technically refers to a situation where there are price movements that don't seem to be grounded in economic fundamentals. So, for example, if a bunch of Redditors and bloggers decide that they're going to take on the establishment by piling into um, GameStop. GameStop stock and it bids up the price of, uh, what is it? G GME. GME. Um, then the bubbliciousness in that moment is a function of the gamers or whoever hurting in that direction it's, it's called hurting mm -hmm. and um and there was evidently what i can read about it uh an organic grassroots aspiration to blow up the hedge funds who were shorting gme um so that's a that's a really now that's not happening in maui's housing market to be sure but what we do see is a sudden move in home prices, particularly single family home prices. And I'll, I'll pop the slide up here uh, on, on quarterly frequencies that happened after COVID. And so you have to ask yourself, given that the trend pre-COVID was relatively stable, was that four or 5% trend we were talking about earlier, uh, maybe a little more robust on the condo side of the market, the affordable side of the market, mm -hmm. then does the jump in those prices from about 800,000 to a million in about six to 12 months in the median Maui single family home price, does that jump represent a bubble per se? And my answer would be no, because there I have a plausible explanatory factor coming from the shift in the way uh, we, we engage in work, right? The remote work phenomenon and the, and the migration that occurred to suburbs and exurbs, and then more, more, more broadly to Zoom towns across America, which evidently West Maui, you know, 
uh, is one. Uh, that was a one-time event. I think it's over and those prices, at least on the single family side of the market, have started to stabilize uh, just over a million dollars on Maui. Condos also have shown a little less energy in the last few months of last year. So I'm inclined not to think of this as a bubble, but if you put it in the historical context, I understand why it's interesting to conjecture that it might be the start of a bubble, like the one we're looking at coming out the of the graph, 90s. Yeah, that you have from the 90s, the 2009. Yeah. a second ago. I mean, that run from 1998, 99 through about 2006, and, and many people think it was still going in 2007 and 2008, but actually it, it ended from a valuation standpoint in 2006. That run was one of the epic bubbles of the modern era. And of course, it precipitated a catastrophic financial collapse, particularly in the non-bank and the shadow banking system. And that and was gathered up the rest of the economy and threw it into recession. Yeah, we're not headed. I don't think we're headed to that right now. Yeah. Do you think that the subprime crisis was caused by economic policy or uh, profiteering? Or oh, no, I mean, it's all of the above. I worked, yeah. I was a banker in those days. I hung out with mortgage bankers like Byron. And, and I remember working in an institution that had an ironclad credit culture and that could not understand why anybody would make a subprime loan. But um, then yeah. I'd be on panel discussions with people. And not, not that I was, I, I thought that at the time, or early on anyway, in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was the democratization of credit that was expanding access to credit to single moms and that kind of thing that you never had access before. So there was a good part of it that just got ugly at the end because once you've banked all the good single moms, there's nobody left except the Slim Shadies. And, um, you know, I was on panel discussions with people. I learned this on a panel discussion one time. Uh, somebody said, oh yeah, we make ninja loans. I was like, what the hell are ninja loans? <laughs> no income, no job or assets. The hell kind of a bar so you're is that? Giving away money. That's what so, that is. So so some of it was that. But some of it was as I just suggested a second ago, we did not understand at the time how big the shadow banking system had become. All of our controls were in the conventional bank system where I live, and where we rigorously approached risk uh, uh, analytics and risk and risk management and that's why you guys well, didn't have a problem well, at all. Capitalized and why we didn't collapse. Yeah. Why almost no banks collapsed in the last financial crisis, yeah. because what blew up was over in the derivatives and the shadow banking area. And the thing I would worry a little about right now is FinTech, mm. sort of the online lending space where some of those controls, uh, some of the culture, credit culture that um, was focused on risk management, safety and soundness and all that stuff. They don't really work here. Any of those online um, loan officers typically result in a transaction not happening at all or switching to a loan uh, uh, on island lender in the last minute. So just right. everybody listening, right. do not use an online lender. It is a crisis waiting to happen. And that's one of the reasons I'm constantly referring Byron Yap to people because he's working with you to make sure yeah. that you understand the process. And more importantly, he's reputable. And if he says he can get something done, he'll get it done. Now we're running out of time, but my last question is, what do you think the potential land landmines in the economy are going forward? You know, obviously disease, mm -hmm. climate culture, or, you know, another potential subprime like the commercial loans and things of that nature, because those make up a large block as well. Byron, what's on your list as a banker? Uh -huh. My the, what concerns? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I, I think Clint kind of, I mean, the concern would be, I mean, at least, at least from a, from a, just my layman thing is the commercial because the, I'm noticing industries are changing their work models, you know, so there's going to be possibly more commercial available. You know, I, I think that could potentially be something that could maybe wind into the housing, you know, potentially. Um, I think that's the one I'm noticing the most out there. And of course, being on Maui, we don't have all those high tech or tech jobs, you know, that, that are based here. So I think there's a disadvantage to local people living here, you know, I mean, but that's probably not part of it, but I'm, I'm more pushing toward the commercial side, maybe the, that side of it, seeing the, the shift in how businesses like restaurants now, do you yeah. really want to open a restaurant when you can open a food truck, be guaranteed that if a disease comes, you can run it there versus a commercial space. Yeah, that's, you know, we haven't talked about this at all, but I, and I spend most of my time working in the residential data sets because it's close to home, no pun intended for, for most people. But you're right, because of working from home and, uh, and for other reasons, the embrace of e-commerce, the realization, the discovery, if you will, that there are channels for uh, distribution of your product or services which do not involve renting commercial space. I think there's a lot of people, property owners, that are looking at um, tenant leases that are going to expire in the next few years, which will not be renewed, mm -hmm. whether it's an office. The one exception might be industrial. But yeah. what I hear is office, even retail, um, has some vulnerabilities, which, of course, represent opportunities for an innovative, creative thinker to go in and repurpose structures that are already there but no longer serve a need which can be served you know more efficiently more profitably yeah. through e-commerce channels or you know just you mentioned food service i mean i'm thinking uh uh you know pickup and delivery and all this other stuff mm -hmm. i mean the whole app thing has just exploded opportunities in the food service industry that were latent, but because of inertia, hadn't really been pursued. And um, so that's, I, I think Clinton was more concerned about, you know, what might fall out of the sky like an asteroid. Right. And, uh, <laughs> now and that's ruin our day. <laughs> well, that would be. Too, the last part of the commercial part is, you know, we have these lumber costs, right? then the rate cost now the investor looking at the vacant land may say hey i don't want to put that commercial building on there now because i can't get really do i have guaranteed tenants you know there yeah. might be more like you're saying more of the industrial side of it like amazon doing that thing in honolulu last mile fulfillment bro last mile fulfillment that's what it's all about that's what it might might transition to well thank you guys so much for coming today i really appreciate it we're at the end of our time, but we could certainly talk about this for probably another couple of hours. <laughs> right. <laughs> thank but, you, Paul. Uh, yeah, Paul Brubaker, thank you so much for coming today. I really appreciate all your insight and help on this. And, of course, Byron Yap with Axia Home Loan. Thank you so much for uh, helping me co-host these shows. Yeah, you have a great day. Thanks, Clint. Thank great talking thank to you, Byron. Thanks, you Paul. Always great. Bye-bye. Take Bye, care, Clint. you guys. Aloha. Aloha.